0: We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, we have finished the second article of the Apostles' Creed, and so we're going into the third article today. If we fly through this, we'll get into the Lord's Prayer. If not, uh, the third article will be as far as we get. Now, if you have the 2017 Catechism, that is on page 17. If you don't, and you're needing some kind of catechism to get you through Um, feel free to sneak up alongside here, grab a Book of Concord, Um, you can find the small catechism in there. So, first article about the First Person of the Holy Trinity, and chiefly about His creation and His continued provision, His sustaining all things necessary for this body and life. The second article, the Second Person of the Trinity, the Son, And to oversimplify a bit, he is true God, begotten of the Father, true man, born of the Virgin Mary, and he is my Lord. He is one. So we have those three Christological principles that will keep us out of about 99% of ancient heresies. Just keeping those three things together. And what does he come to do? To redeem me, a lost and condemned person. To purchase and win me, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and his innocent sufferings and death, that I might be his own and live in, in live in his kingdom, serve him and live in his kingdom, in everlasting righteousness, <coughs> innocence, and blessedness. Okay, then the third article, predictably, the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit. And sanctification. Now, um, sanctification, that language, um, you can hear... Uh, like sanctuary, which is where we we call the the place where we have our divine service. And um, at the root of that is the Latin word sanctus, holy. So sanctification is just a a big fancy word for holyification. Luther says in the large catechism, the Holy Spirit is rightly named because it's his job to make everything holy. That's what the Holy Spirit does. By contrast, you can think of the unholy spirit. Who would that be? Satan. Satan, right. Uh, not not an oversimplification at all in the garden where adam and eve are there newly created there's really only two voices there's the voice of god and the voice of the serpent the holy spirit and the unholy spirit in obeying the unholy spirit we were given over to him and so we're in bondage to this unholy spirit that's the power of satan Uh, over this fallen world, so much so the scriptures call him a small g God of this world. He's about to be evicted and shown that he's not the the true God of this world, Uh, but he is the unholy spirit, and so the Holy Spirit, his job is to come and snatch us out of the kingdom of this unholy spirit out of out from under his reign and bring us into the reign of God. Now more on this when we talk The lord's prayer because we're going to see the petitions at least a couple of them directly in light of this theology but we may as well bring it out here so it's the holy spirit's job to take things that are by nature now on account of the fall unholy belonging to the unholy spirit to bring us back to god and thus render us holy and so very simply and most broadly the, um, the language of sanctification is simply the language of making holy and when you find it in scriptures That's just its usage. Now we'll talk about that and what nuanced ways we can understand that language of sanctification uh, as we go along. We simply confess that God is these three persons in one essence. And the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is also a person. That is, he's not like a force. Um, He's not an an inanimate, unpersonal force. For example, in Acts Ananias and Sapphira are accused of lying to the Holy Spirit. You can't lie to gravity, right? So so that demonstrates that uh, the Holy Spirit, and of course personal pronouns are used throughout Scripture, he's referred to as a he. Um, So the Holy Spirit is a he, and he is a person. Um, Yeah, maybe we should do this in our gender-bending age, just to be clear. Uh, (laughs) father means he (laughs) son means he the only room where there's any room is the holy spirit and the scriptures definitively call him a he so god is a he yeah and it's and it's good that he's a he um the holy christian church is is a she (laughs) and that's really this theology and the and the entire What I come to increasingly see is the entire theology of the scriptures and where we're all going is the dwelling place of God is with man, and and the entire reason why God created everything the way he did in the beginning was to lead us to this ultimate climax where God and man are one. You have this analogy so beautifully in marriage where the two become one flesh, and then from that come the children, and the children and the parents are one flesh, And don't you have that then, the father with his children? You see that one flesh? God is father before the foundation of the world. And the son will will marry his bride, the church. So that before the foundation of the world. And then you can see why God creates this thing called marriage and this thing called parenthood and why he designs it the way he designs it. It's a reflection of who he is and where he's taking us in the most profound sense. Okay, and so we need, we, I mean, God is a he and thus the church is a she and there's really no messing around with that. This, by the way, too, is why the pastoral office is reserved to he's because otherwise that imagery gets all blurred. If you have a she representing God and a she is the church, well, I mean, that appeals to modern sensibilities, but not to biblical sensibilities, not to Christian sensibilities. All right, so then here in the third article of the apostles creed we simply confess i believe in the holy spirit the holy christian church the communion of saints the forgiveness of sins the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting amen now it may feel like kind of a stretch toward the end but i think you'll see the point i believe in the holy spirit and what comes next the holy christian church and the communion of the saints who are saints holy ones okay um the same exact language uh in in like um well latin or greek the same exact language so the communion of saints holy ones the forgiveness of sins well if you're sinless you are holy the resurrection of the body if the body is raised now the body that was corrupted is now made holy and life everlasting, which as we have seen and will see and can just sort of almost intuit and imagine is going to be a holy life everlasting. And so you can see how the Holy Spirit here and and these various other articles, if you will, or, or phrases of this third article all show us what the Holy Spirit is up to what it is that he's doing and what his role is in the economy of salvation, the ordering of salvation. Okay? So, let's simply, um, well, let's simply walk through the language and then we'll go through Luther's What Does This Mean? Hopefully we'll be able to keep this simple, but if you have, um, if you have questions or comments, don't, um, don't hesitate to raise a hand and we'll get you a microphone okay so the holy spirit the holy christian church now in in what way does the holy spirit make the holy christian church so we've already said that when adam and eve fell into sin they fell under the sway of the unholy (coughs) spirit how do they come and you can answer just really concretely in terms of the narrative of and events of genesis how do, they, how do they come to faith? How do they come to believe and trust in God again? How do they come under the sway, uh, to whatever degree they are, of the Holy Spirit?
1: They have to go back to believing what he said.
0: Okay, so God speaks to them. God speaks to them. And in the first place, he promises them... Again, he actually speaks this directly to the serpent, but it's in the earshot of the man and woman. And he says to the serpent that the seed of the woman will crush your head. Well, what has Satan come to do? He's brought sin into the world. And remember that what God says, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so we see that with sin comes death. And with death comes this eternal separation from God, who is life. So to crush the head of the serpent would be to undo all his work, to take away sins, to put death to death, and to save us from everlasting death by reuniting us to the one who is life. And so, of course, this is exactly what Christ comes to do and does. There's this, um, sorry, this is my pause, but there's this... uh, there's this beautiful artwork you can find um, where, where um, it's a crucifix. And under, under Christ's uh, feet, nailed to the cross, but under his heel is a serpent. You go, that's, that's not very factual. Well <laughs> Yeah, but it's, sho- it's showing exactly where, you know, when his heel is bruised. You can picture the nails going through. Precisely when his heel is bruised, he is crushing the serpent's head, right? There's also a beautiful, a, a more obscure but uh, equally beautiful typology there. and um, I think maybe I've seen this once, but I really have to go hunting. And that is, do you, re- do you remember in the days of the judges when there was this um, evil rapacious guy named Sisera? And do you remember what what JL woman hero of, of Israel did? Spike through his head. Yeah, he had come, you know, fleeing to hide in her tent and um, as soon as she had him all covered up, she takes the tent spike right through his noggin. And um, Sisera is a type of Satan. And uh, and so even there on the uh, on the cross as, as Christ's heel is nailed through, there's this image of Sisera nailing it through and You've got such beautiful imagery there because you not only have Christ conquering, but you have the woman conquering in and through Christ, this beautiful typology of the church in the person of J.L. I wanted to name my daughter J.L., and my wife said, you want to call our daughter J.L.? <laughs> Maybe that might keep the wrong kind of guys away. <laughs> uh, I lost. I lost. I lost probably for the better yeah so there's this um there's this preaching that takes place and that's where the holy spirit comes back and and creates in the hearts of adam and eve faith faith in god Um, you can see this because they hold firm to that promise that the seed of the woman is coming luther points this out that if you just look at the hebrew itself Immediately becoming, upon becoming pregnant and giving birth to Cain, Eve says, I have received a man, and the English goes, a man from the Lord. That's not in the Hebrew. A man, the Lord. What is Eve's expectation? God is coming in human flesh through the woman, And he is going to crush the serpent's head. But this shows what's her faith in. Her faith is in this coming one, this seed, who will later be called the anointed one, the Messiah. Adam and Eve were Christians. Adam and Eve were Christians. The faith that goes all the way up to the deluge, all the way up to the flood, is the Christian faith. It's this preaching of righteousness through the seed of the woman who is going to come and undo the work of the devil, undo sin, death, and the devil's kingdom. So, what we would say, then, is the Holy Spirit retakes Adam and Eve by means of the Word of God. And this becomes more clear and more explicit as we go along. But the Holy Spirit works through the Word, creating faith. You might, in your ears, you might be hearing um, St. Paul in uh, Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. And so this this preaching of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit creates faith. And where there's faith, God credits that faith with holiness. All right, well, I know this is a rather long exercise, but when you get to the Holy Christian Church, what are we talking about? We're talking about all believers who believe in Christ, who who the Holy Spirit has grasped hold of by means of the word and promise of God, and created and kindled faith in them so that they too look for the Messiah and Savior who has and will take away sin, death, and the devil. Okay, definitively. I say he has because the death blow's been dealt once and for all on the cross. The will is what we see is the wriggling body of the, the serpent thrashing around desperately right now while his head's been crushed in, and when he breathes his last, Christ comes and, you know, kicks the rest of the serpent off, off of this plane, so to speak, the way he, the way he kicked Satan out of uh, snakes on a plane.
1: (laughs) I didn't even think about it until I saw
0: that. (laughs) Didn't mean it that way. Meant plane of existence. (laughs) That's good, though. I'm going to have to remember that. New way to teach it. So, so yeah, out of, uh, I mean, this is Revelation 12. This is at the ascension of Christ. Satan gets ousted from the heavenly sphere, from the heavenly plane. Okay, and then um, he, down to earth he comes, and he's furious because his days are short. And when Christ comes down to earth, guess where he's going to get kicked out of? The earthly sphere, the cosmos, the those things which are visible. Out he goes, and where is he going to go? Well, the scripture defines, you know, d- describes it as. Uh, eternal darkness the lake of fire etc all right so that's what we're waiting for meanwhile the holy spirit's busy through the word creating a holy christian church all who believe are credited with righteousness Um, all who believe this promise of christ uh, are credited with righteousness and this is foundational of course um, for us as lutherans but it was foundational for saint paul and St. Paul's argument, we'll open up to Romans here in a minute, but St. Paul's argument is it's foundational to the Old Testament. St. Paul's argument is that what is revealed all the way back in Abraham, that Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness, that what was true in the Old Testament is now true in the New Testament. We are justified by faith not by any works we have done. And of course, Paul's argument is, was was Abraham justified before or after he was circumcised? Before. He's justified by faith before there are any works done by Abraham or any works of the law. This also serves another of Paul's points. If Abraham was justified by faith before circumcision, Abraham was a what? Gentile. It's circumcision that makes one a Jew. It's Abraham that makes one a Jew. And so so the promise is given to Gentiles when it's given to Abraham. It's given to all people first and foremost. You see what Paul does there? So this is profound, and it's perfectly in keeping with what we just said, that Adam and Eve became the church. They believed in Christ. That continues all the way through Noah and the flood, and then Abraham, we pick up, and he mm-hmm. believes in Christ. And so he is. his faith is credited as righteousness. Okay. More specifics on that to come in today's sermon, or you've just come out of it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But we're going to talk about Abraham's faith and what it was in. Okay, so the Holy Spirit creates the Holy Christian Church. Now, I mean this in a very non-technical sense. We can look at the, we can define the Holy Church in two different ways. Here's the non-technical sense. We can kind of do a from below, and that is that we can say the Holy Church is all true believers scattered everywhere, right? So you don't get to, you don't get to, you know, hang a shingle outside of your church and say, ah, we are the church. Anyone not on our membership rolls is out. Uh, Who notoriously has done this in church history? The later Roman Catholic Church, the, the, the post-Council of Trent, the post-16th century Roman Catholic Church has said, hey, we are the church. Anyone, anyone who will not kiss the Pope's ring is not going to heaven. And we say, wait a minute. We thought it was Christ and the Holy Spirit that gets us to heaven. He's like, kiss my ring. We're like, no. That's the Reformation in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, so are there, are there Christians in the Roman Catholic Church? Of course. Um, are there non Christians in the Lutheran Church? I'd wager yes. Sadly, um, are, are there, so there's Christians scattered everywhere. There may even be some surprise Christians. That's C.S. Lewis has some has some great hope for us on that. That there might there might be some great surprises on Judgment Day um, because, because salvation is by grace through faith apart from works. Um, there might even be some some well, I think there will be some great surprises on Judgment Day in regard to um, who, who are the first and the last within the kingdom of God. Remember when the, uh, the widow drops her two little mites and Jesus says she gave more than everyone else? Huge surprise. No one would have guessed. So this idea of like, like who in heaven is, you know, might be most glorified, probably the least that you would expect. And so we'll get to we'll get to revel and delight in that and in God's wisdom and and a, a just astonishing wisdom um, in in that. Okay, so so that's a way to define the church from below: all true believers scattered everywhere um how might we how might we do it from above and again i mean this from below from above in a non-technical sense but how might we define it from above where where is the church because i can't i can't go into a room i mean i'm standing in a room with a bunch of people i can't say i can see into your hearts that you're all true christians so so because i can't see that some people say the church is hidden invisible is kind of bad because um i mean it's kind of not accurate really because well you're all quite visible Right? And if you are a true believer, you're quite visible. There's nothing invisible about you. But hidden. Hidden is a good way of putting it. So the church is hidden. That doesn't help me existentially, personally, if I'm looking for the church. So where, in, in what sense can I find the marks of the church to know that the church is there? And this is kind of a theology from above. Where the word of Christ is, there Christ is. Remember what he says to his apostles, whoever hears you, hears me. Okay, So where the word of Christ is, there Christ is. And by extension, where the sacraments of Christ are, there Christ is. Because what are the sacraments but the words and signs commanded and instituted by Christ. So then this becomes a fantastic way to say these are the marks of the church this is how i existentially personally can find the church in the world i want to go where the word of god is rightly preached and of course that means law and gospel rightly distinguished and i want to go where the sacraments of christ are rightly administered they're administered and given according to his command Mm -hmm. Um, if if i don't if i don't see that and i see a group of people that says they're christian and says they're a church i can say well they there might indeed be true believers here and they might indeed, of course, be, properly speaking, members of the Church, but I don't see the marks and signs of the Church. I don't see the Word rightly preached, the Gospels rightly administered. So I'm going to go look for that place where I find that. Okay? Um, so then that becomes, that becomes the, the ways in which we can find the Holy Christian Church. All right, any thoughts or questions on the Christian Church before we move on to the Communion of Saints? Totally, totally anticlimactic move here. In, in most of later Christian tradition, including Lutheranism, the communion of saints is just taken as a restatement of what the church is. Now, if you dig a little more... Di- and, and so what is the communion of saints? You could say, you could say it's all the saints joining around Christ um, and in Christ um, via faith. You could sort of put a finer point on that and say it's all the saints gathered around Christ in... Holy Communion. And that probably, that probably gets back to the way the early church viewed this phrase. Um, the saints there can be holy people, but it can also be holy things. So what would it be to commune in holy things? If you're thinking liturgically, if you're thinking on what happens on Sunday morning, what would it be to have koinonia or communion in the holy things? Yeah, yeah, it would be capital C communion. It would be holy communion. What what more holy things are there than the holy body and holy blood of Christ? And do you remember how St. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 10? He says the, the bread that we break, is it not a koinonia, communion, in the body of Christ? The cup that we drink, is it not a koinonia, a communion in the blood of Christ? And so to partake of the bread and to partake of the wine is to partake of the body and blood, the holy communion of the holy things. All right, so what is that to say? You can simply take communion of the saints to be a restatement of what the church is, or you can see it, and I would argue this is probably a little more historically accurate, flavored with the Lord's Supper flavored with the holy communion okay so it is the holy spirit i mean if either way it's it's true that the holy spirit's the one at work and the holy spirit is the one uh, creating the faith to put forward the gifts of jesus and gathering the people there to receive those gifts so that faith is strengthened created expanded all of the above when, when Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, we make a mistake if we just narrow that to conversion. It is certainly conversion, but it's more than conversion. Because that faith which comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ means our faith can continually expand. Guess what? Our faith can also continually contract <laughs> until it's not there at all. If we neglect his word and gifts, faith will go to nothing. So... He not only creates faith through his word, but he sustains faith in us, and he expands our faith, deepens our faith, however you want to think of it. Okay? Yes, sir. Hold on. Can we get... Let me get you a microphone quick. Hang on one second. So all of the people in the back and the entire world wide web, no pressure. (laughs) Hear what you say.
1: Is, Is that what's going on in Genesis when... Cain, God talks to Cain and says, it's crouching at you, you know, and the same thing is happening to Peter just before, you know, he's, Jesus is taken to, to, you know, the Sanhedrin and all that. They're both times he's saying, hey, you have to think what's going on.
0: Hmm. I don't know about the comparison between Cain and Peter. That's one rarely made. The comparison between um, Cain and uh, Judas, yeah. frequently made. And then, and then sort of the anti-type, the opposite type of, of Judas being Peter. Yeah. Of course, they both, in their way, betray the Lord. Um, and uh, Judas falls into despair and unbelief and offs himself. Peter um, finds repentance and is restored by the Lord, and then continues. And So you, you kind of have these two types in, you know, of, of, all hum, of all human beings in Cain those two men.
1: Wasn't, Cain did not do what he was supposed to do. He just That's decided sure. yeah. to go the wrong way.
0: Yeah, yeah, good point, good point. Yeah, so, well, you can think back to that narrative where Eve mistakenly, piously but mistakenly says, I have received a man, the Lord. If that's true, pay attention to how Cain acts, and you'll see <laughs> what happens when you grow up telling your son he's God in human flesh. <laughs> Turns out to be a jerk. <laughs> yeah. And Abel, Abel literally means nothing. And so you can see that in the narrative, too, that, hey, Cain, you're God's gift. And boy, he sure acted like he, he was. And they told Abel he's nothing, right? And so, so he's, he's, he's of no account whatsoever. Just put him out there with the sheep. And and you can see how this how this lowering and this humiliation is a glorification. Because as he's out with the sheep, he's the Bible's first shepherd. And as his blood is shed by Cain as Christ is shed by the Jews, he is is the shepherd that's slain. And as the blood wait, our beautiful hymnity, the blood of Abel cries for vengeance, but the but the blood yeah, the blood of Cain cries, no, the blood of Abel cries for vengeance, the blood of Jesus for our pardon. So he becomes a type of Christ. In being humbled and humiliated and murdered, he is exalted and honored and glorified.
1: Okay, yes? Uh, One knock that there is on Christianity, uh, uh, bear with me, it's a a dumb one, but I I hear it. And that that is uh, that when you go to heaven there's no way you'll be able to ever find your loved ones. It'll be, you know, very, you know let's say a third of all people are saved, just being, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. whatever, uh, uh, hopeful. Okay. Um, you know, that's billions and billions of people. You'll never find anyone. And I've, I, I, I've sometimes heard that the, this idea of the communion of the saints is a rejection of that, the idea that you, we will be in communion with people that we knew as well as people we didn't know. And that we'll all be able somehow through a miracle to be able to be right.
0: Yeah, I don't know. In w- community with all these people, <laughs> I don't know. I don't really want to dignify that with a response. I mean,
1: <laughs> I, I told you it wasn't a great uh, argument, yeah. but uh, you know, this is the this is the the. I don't know.
0: When you get up there, you can discover those those like map things they have in the malls. You know, yeah, right. you remember uh, those? Yeah, you can create those for everyone, and then maybe alphabetize the sections yeah yeah um yeah i don't know if i want to dignify that with a response The i mean because the more profound truth is the is the the communion of saints um is already taking place right now and a, at, in at the altar yeah at holy yeah. communion that's yeah. why our yeah ancient liturgical component um with angels archangels and the whole company of heaven um and why and why it's so ancient or at least that sentiment and that teaching is ancient it goes down to Christology. If if Christ, says, if Christ says, this is my body, this is my blood, where, where's his body and blood? It's, it's on earth. But isn't, isn't it also in heaven? So are you going to say there's one body and blood on earth and one body and blood? Now you've got two Jesus, you've got two human natures. I mean, you've made a mess of everything. Get the, uh, get the logs fired up. Um, no. But, but so what's going on there? What's going on? Where Christ locates himself in the sacrament, heaven and earth are being pulled together and wed together in union in a foretaste of that wedding of heaven and earth of God and man to come. And so that's why we say unabashedly um, with angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven. Of course, Revelation has, has a slightly easier way to conceptualize that, and that's that the, the, the divine service in the heavenly liturgy is ongoing and continuous, and when we participate in it, we're just simply saying, hey, we're here. <laughs> we're here to join you for an hour, hour and a half. Um, and and that, so it is our, the whole church around the earth is participating in the heavenly ongoing liturgy.
1: We're, we're gathering around the cross, right? Yeah, yeah. To, to partake of, of the body and blood Absolutely. of Christ right there yeah. before the, us. The,
0: yeah, the, yeah the, the crucifixion of Christ that happens in time, once and for all, transcends time. In the sacrament of the right. altar.
1: Right, because the idea that, I mean, the, the Calvinists have this idea that we go up to heaven to be with Jesus and have right. bread punching crackers there. But, you know, I think they have this defective notion that somehow Jesus, when we eat the body and blood of Christ, Jesus is up in heaven and, you know, pulls off a toe or something like that and drops it down to us. And it's ridiculous. We're, yeah. we're, we're having the blood of Christ that's shed on the cross than the body of Christ that was broken there.
0: Right. You're In communion, we've always articulated it this way. The whole small c Catholic churches articulate that you receive the whole Christ. Right, right. And the crucified one to one. Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's one to one. And it's a sacramental eating, not a Capernaitic or. Um, what would you say cannibalistic eating right. um, no no christian has ever claimed that if you get a microscope out you're going to see body cells or blood platelets that's uh that's a category that's a mistaken category right. the sacramental union means it's truly there but there in a way that is is incomprehensible to our senses god can do what he wants to do we're not gonna we're not gonna violate jesus words
1: and we could go off on the philosophy of that for some time i think but um, let's not
0: yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> not today <laughs> Not until we each have a beer in our hands on some Friday <laughs> afternoon or something. Yeah. Yeah, I think maybe the most egregious thing, just on a ground level, uh, that the mind recoils at is why Calvinism tells you that you have to ascend. You know, they, they tell you you can ascend up to heaven and commune on Christ at the right hand of God. And the reason for that is because Christ can't come down to you. So that's <laughs> kind of an issue there. Uh, kind of an issue. Okay, did I see a hand? Yes, a hand, a hand all the way up front here. Was there another one? Okay. We'll grab the hand up front here, and then we'll, uh, we'll move along.
1: Who wrote the Apostles' Creed?
0: Oh, who wrote the Apostles' Creed? Great question. Nobody knows. So... <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's an interesting history here, and I can only give you the high points without refreshing in it myself, but, but it's, it's thought that the Apostles' Creed, in its, its nascent form, goes back to something like the 2nd century as a baptismal liturgy. Um, in the form we have it, it's not finalized until something like the 8th or ninth century, which technically makes, if you just compare the versions we have, the Nicene Creed of, of the 4th century... Is earliest Um, even though chronologically in terms of like you know the organic structure of it the Apostles Creed would be first so of course creeds begin as um, as baptismal statement you renounce the devil and you profess your face your faith positively in, in Christ and so that's really the credo the I believe of the Creed and later on, these creeds get fleshed out to distinguish, not that much later on, but they get fleshed out to um, confess over and against the major heresies. Um, so, for example, the, um, this, this, uh, like what the, Holy, the Holy Spirit as a person and what he does is brought into the creedal formula to make a solid confession against those who are saying, you know, we, we don't worship God one god in three persons but one god in two persons right or those that say there's one god and christ is created and the holy spirit's a force i mean this is like ancient mormonism you know arianism so anyway second century is where we get the roots we don't know who did it baptismal creed gets fleshed out and finalized by the eighth or ninth century something like that to where we have it today The Catholics have the same creed? Yeah, exactly. I mean, these are the ecumenical creeds. So the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed are called the ecumenical creeds. They were all confessed before there was any manifest, lasting schism in the Church. So before the East and the West split, before the Reformation. I mean, there were divisions all the way back to the first century. For crying out loud, virtually every one of the epistles is written on account of some division or divisive issue taking place in the church. So this idea that denominations didn't start until the split between East and West is really kind of wrong. Um, If you look at uh, uh, Werner Ehlert's book, um, The Eucharist in the First Four Centuries, he'll he'll disabuse you of this... uh, this illusion that we've gotten ourselves into. So denominations of one sh- way, shape, or form existed. But the thing about that is, no matter how wackadoodle e- everybody got, if you're within Christendom, you're confessing these three ecumenical creeds. And so that continues to this day. I mean, very, very telling if uh, if you belong to a, a quote-unquote Protestant church that can't confess one of the three ecumenical creeds. Very, very telling that you might you might want to reevaluate your participation in that church. Um, okay, thank you for that. All right, so pressing on, pressing on, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is really the mechanism in the heart of this article, because the forgiveness of the sins is the, is the chief way in which we're made holy. And even this forgiveness of sins is the foundation for our regeneration and what is called narrowly our sanctification. That is sort of our maturation in Christ. Um, but here, here, the forgiveness of sins is the root. And you can see that the forgiveness of sins comes in the, it, I mean, the forgiveness of sins is everywhere, if you, if you just pay attention. It's, it's in the liturgy. It's in the pastor absolving us. Of course, he's absolving us by the baptismal font, and the baptismal font is a washing away of sins. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. Um, So there's forgiveness of sins in the water. There's forgiveness of sins in the absolution. There's forgiveness of sins in the preaching. There's forgiveness of sins in the Lord's Supper. In Matthew chapter 26, and it's kept in our words of institution, um, Christ gives his cup, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Okay? So the forgiveness of sins is absolutely everywhere. It's absolutely central. It's how God counts and accredits us righteous. And of course, at the heart of all of that is the cross. It's not different forgiveness. It's not piecemeal forgiveness. You know, Roman Catholicism kind of does this thing where it's piecemeal forgiveness. Baptism will take care of all your sins right up until you're baptized. After that, you're on your own again. If you fall into sin, time to do some penance. Okay, now you've got the credit-debit system. And then the Lord's Supper is there for your venial sins, but not for your mortal sins. And so on with this piecemeal system, okay? Yeah, forget all that. Because Jesus doesn't say, like, partial, like, you know, drink of it all of you. This cup is my blood of the new covenant shed for you for your venial sins. Shed for you for some of your sins. And really not all the severe, since they're just venial. No, he just says forgiveness right? Baptism doesn't say, hey, this is a washing away of your sins up until this very point, and the second you do something after that, you're on your own. No, I mean, there's no caveats, there's no asterisks, it's just forgiveness, full and free. And of course, these take on different shapes and forms and have their own strengths. Baptism is done once and for all. That's its beauty and strength. You can always return to it. Um, The Lord's Supper, the strength of the Lord's Supper is you can participate in it as often as you want. As often as you want, you can have that reassurance. Confession absolution has the beautiful strength that you can go to a pastor, confidentially say exactly how the devil's tormenting you, name whatever sin you want to name, it's entirely confidential, and you'll hear the holy absolution spoken directly to you over that sin. And that is a powerful, powerful weapon in spiritual warfare and against the assaults of the devil. So these all, even though it's forgiveness, they all have their different way, shape, and form. It drives me up a wall when people say, all the forgiveness is redundant. You know, or, if you get forgiveness in, in baptism, why do you need forgiveness in the Lord's Supper? And if you get forgiveness in the Lord's Supper, why do you need. I mean, do you understand what this is like? This is like saying, if my wife shows her love to me by hugging me, I certainly don't need her to kiss me. And if, if she shows her love to me and hugging me, I don't need her to cook me a meal either. I mean, doesn't love take all these different forms? So, why would we say that one is enough? I mean, the analogy here, the analogy here is precisely marriage. So, on the cross, Christ says, I do. And these people who don't want sacraments or don't want the preaching of the gospel, it's like, you know, these are these are probably the same the same people that say to their spouses, I told you I loved you on our wedding day, and that should be enough. <laughs> Anything else is redundant. <laughs> We're crying out loud. So so what is it? On the cross is Jesus, I do to his church. And then and then what, I mean, what is, what is it but the embrace of baptism and the, the tender, loving words of absolution and um, the comforting kiss of Holy Communion and so forth? These are all manners in which our bridegroom expresses his love to his church, and he does this continually and manifestly. That's why when people say, you know, again, Protestants kind of say, do you have a relationship with Jesus? I mean, what do they mean? They mean, do I have Jesus as kind of like my imaginary friend? I have said to them, no, I don't. I have the holy sacraments. Because the holy sacraments are where the real and true relationship with Jesus is. That's actually Jesus. Not imaginary friend Jesus. You know, Jesus my co-pilot or whatever I imagine. I mean, for crying out loud, shouldn't he be driving? Um,
1: <laughs>
0: but a true living relationship with Jesus is where, the two, where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am. He promises to be there. And he promises to meet us in, in holy baptism. Where through him we are washed, as Paul says. And he promises to meet us in absolution. Whoever hears you, hears me. And um, that's why he breathes his Holy Spirit on in the apostles, and says, for if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. And then, of course, in his, in his supper, his body and blood given and shed, he himself for us. Okay, So this is what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, and you're not making it up, and you're not fabricating it. And it's like, it's like you know, did, did God talk to you this week? Yeah, he did, when I sat in divine service and I heard the three readings, the Old Testament, the Epistle, and the New Testament. And then insofar as Rodi didn't botch it and told me exactly what the Lord said and applied that to me, that too was the Word of God, right? That too was the Word of God applied to my life. And so, yeah, God talked to me in exactly this way. You know, the great idolatry, uh, uh, usually of our age, you go to church and it's like you get the scriptures and you go, Oh, I'm not being fed. That's the very bread of life. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the, you have the words of eternal life. I'm not being fed. Um, no, you're not being fed what you want to be fed, and that's your own idolatry, because you're going to church thinking, hey, I need problem X solved, and God's like, no, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. You need problem A, B, and C solved, and here, right? So there's humility involved in coming to church and simply receiving from the Lord what he has to give and trusting that that is the word of the Lord. I mean, that's really where that, you know, where that liturgical phrase comes from, where the pastor says, this is the word of the Lord. We all say, oh, thanks be to God. I thought that that was like the Huckleberry Finn or something. I didn't, maybe the Odyssey, I didn't recognize it. No, no, the pastor is not saying, just so you're clear, this is in the Bible. No, he is, he's actually calling us to faith. He's saying this is, after he's done reading, he's saying this is the word of the Lord. That is, you have just heard the living voice of the living God speak to you, present tense. And the people say, in faith, thanks be to God. You see what's going on there? It's a real thing, accessible only to faith. You know, if you come into church like a curmudgeon, like, "Uh, here we are just all sitting in a group of people, and we're going to sing a bunch of songs, and I hope they're tolerable. I mean... This old reading? I've heard this a thousand times. You know, this kind of thing, like, you know. So that's, that's the problem. Then church becomes this really super flat, anthropocentric thing. And no wonder, I mean, if that's what you think church is, like, I really would advise not going, maybe. But um, what you see then... What you see then is quite different biblically, where Christ promises to be with us and is interacting with us and is speaking his words present tense into our ears, administering his gifts, and is doing law and gospel to the end that we acknowledge our sins and receive the forgiveness of sins. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. As Christ says, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, that's the law, convicts of righteousness that's the gospel and convicts of judgment that's where all these two that's where these two things tie together so it's not just all a head game maybe we've all heard sermons where it's kind of like you're a really bad sinner but it's okay Jesus loves you we try to avoid those but it's just head games you know and it's it's lacking that third leg of the stool that all of this matters because you are going to be face to face with Jesus so here's where the law and the gospel function along with the, the conviction unto judgment. Um, the devil has been cast down, and so we are, uh, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's the forgiveness of sins. Let's look at the resurrection of the body. If your sins are forgiven, the day you eat of it you shall surely die. If sin brings death, then if sins are forgiven, what else has to go away? Death. Okay, but don't we still die? Yeah, and Jesus addresses this in two different ways. Though you die, yet shall you live. That's really, frankly, the resurrection of the body. And this is the great comfort, you know, not that Grandpa's floating around up in, up in heaven somewhere, and as we heard earlier today, you're probably not going to find him for a few billion years. <laughs> How's that for good news? Yikes. Um, yeah, so... <laughs> So the resurrection of the body, though you die, yet shall you live. That's easy. And then what Jesus says next is pretty mind-blowing. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That means that when you die, it's not death, if you believe in him. If you're in Christ, as I said today, it, it, when you're in Christ, the dead end of death becomes the tunnel to eternal life. We have such beautiful hymnody that talks about death now has, has become a portal. Now Christ tore death open. And now you pass right through. You don't see death, Jesus says. And the reason for that is because you see him. You know. I don't know. I assume, I assume parts of dying maybe are pretty uncomfortable. I've seen uncomfortable deaths. I've seen comfortable deaths. Who knows? Everybody wants a comfortable death. I say you've only got to do it once. <laughs> Why not live at large? <laughs> Why not stand against it all, confessing the, the good confession? Um, yeah, but as soon as, as soon as the screen goes blank or whatever, the next, the next thing you're going to see is the face of Jesus. Or maybe angels taking you there. Uh, but, that's, but pretty much you're going to see the face of Jesus, not death. So there is, there is no end. There is no death. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. All right, so that's... When we look to the resurrection of the body, we're looking at that first point. Now, when we die, our bodies go into the earth. Our souls are with Jesus in heaven. Today you will be with me in paradise. Right? We're alive. We're aware it's not like a lobotomy. There's no, there's no like golden wings and harps and floaty clouds and everybody lobotomized, like, oh, who are you? Did I know you in life? <laughs> I don't know. Is that David? Who's David? You know. And in the meanwhile, Enya's cheering in the background, like chanting, no, no, this is New Ageism. This is Gnosticism. This has nothing to do with the Christian faith. What you look like as a soul is what you look like in the body. You will go up there, you will recognize everyone and be recognized when the disciples saw Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, did they say to Jesus, now who are these guys? <laughs> no, they knew immediately, supernaturally, that it was Moses and Elijah. And so it will all be. You will be in heaven, and you only need somebody to say, hey, c- c- you know, could, you, could you show me where King David is? You know, could you take me to my grandma? No, you're going to know where everyone is, and and you're, you're going to be more you. I mean, this is the big thing. Like, we have perceived of heaven in a Gnostic way. You're going to be less you. No! Heaven is exactly the opposite. You're going to be more you than you've ever been. The parts that aren't you, the flesh, is going to be all fallen away, along with all of its decay and forgetfulness and silliness, all of it gone, and we'll be able to finally see and perceive purely. Okay, so then um, on the last day, Christ returns, and he raises everyone in their bodies everyone because his victory over death is so universal that death is simply undone if adam's sin brought death and the sin of one man brought death then christ brings life through his cross so life to all now does that mean that all are saved no some are raised in their bodies despising the lord they've rejected the lord they want nothing to do with the lord they've allied themselves with the unholy spirit they've made their choice but, on the other hand, it's not to take away from the power of Christ in conquering death. He's conquered death for all. And that's t- proof, too, by the way, of the, that the atonement of Jesus is universal. If The resurrection is universal. The atonement's universal. Okay, and on the last day we're raised in our bodies, our bodies will suddenly become perfect. Perfect which means that everyone's going to be a lot more attractive. I'll basically stay the same. And then, no, <laughs> I do that all the time to the confirmation kids. Drives them nuts. It's great fun. Um, so, yeah, the, um, you know, we're all going to look a heck of a lot more attractive than we do now because whether we realize it or not, uh, or now, we're stained by sin and decay and death is already creeping all over us. All of that's gone. Um, we're not going to suffer. We're not going to have confusion. I mean, it's going to be perfection in the body perfection in the body. As Christ is risen, so we will be raised. And then because we have a physical body, we're going to need a physical place to dwell. And that's the new heavens and the new earth. So again, big mistake in modern Christianity, this idea you're going to go to heaven and be in heaven forever. No, you're not. No, you're not. First of all, heaven isn't forever. It's the new heavens and the new earth. Heaven has to be remade. Why? There's been sin in heaven. Satan was up there. And he's sin incarnate. He's sinned in heaven. There's been war in heaven. Revelation 12 will tell you that. It's certainly paradise because we're there with Jesus, but there's a sense in which heaven has to be made new, just as earth has to be made new. So the heavens and the earth will be made new, and we will inherit these in our bodies made perfect. Glorious. Glorious, glorious. So that the end is, not only will we be able to actually hug our lost loved ones, toast them, with the finest of wines, or German ales. Um, but we will, also, we will also be able to embrace our Lord Jesus, raise in his body. And like Thomas, we will be able to trace our fingers over his wounds by which we were bought. And with these lips into his ears, we will be able to say, thank you, thank you. So it is a beautiful, beautiful concrete reality it's coming for us as Christians, and we need to hold firm to this in these dark and trying and you know days of frustration and feeling like we're all going to lose and um, it's just a it's just all going down the tank slowly, <laughs> usually quickly these days. You know, we need to realize, hey, hey, Christianity, Christianity has this to say: we win, we win. Keep the faith. Christ is coming. We win everything gets solved, nothing was in vain, everything is redeemed, everything has meaning and purpose, there is going to be no shame. The very things that fill us with shame will be the ways in which Christ glorifies us. I mean, think of Abel again, filled with shame, dying. It's the very thing that glorifies him. So it will be with us. Okay, so the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, and as time is drawing to a close here, I want to just make one final point here. Um, One final point, we'll read Luther, we'll be done. So, the one final point is that life everlasting is not really something that we possess. Life everlasting is certainly not a place. Life everlasting, according to Jesus, um, in his prayer in John, well you remember jesus says this very plainly i am the way the truth and the life jesus is life okay so you have life if you have jesus and in the and in his prayer in john's gospel he prays he prays to the father this is eternal life that they may know you and the one whom you have sent the essence of life is to have god and to know god intimately that's life So we can have eternal life now because we have God, and that life is God. God is life. Christ is life. So when we think about the life everlasting, you can see how this goes on for all eternity, because it is to have God for all eternity, to have Christ for all eternity. All right, so what does this mean? What does this mean? I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. Now if you do the little grammar here, I believe that I cannot... Believe in Jesus Christ. Again, we've already hit this point, but faith comes by a free will decision? By hearing. How are you going to make a free will decision about something that you haven't even heard? Right? I mean, picture yourself entirely ignorant of Christ. How are you going to choose Christ of whom you have not heard? Yeah. So, in the first place, you have to hear of Christ. And then who convinces you of the veracity and truth of Christ? The Holy Spirit. And so faith comes by hearing. I believe that I cannot believe in Jesus Christ my Lord. I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord. Or come to him. I mean, how can you come to to him of whom you are ignorant? But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. This is precisely faith comes by hearing. Enlightened me with his gifts. Um, Think of of, um, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Enlightening enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith, pulled me out of the unholy spirit's realm, brought me into the Holy Spirit's realm, thus made me holy, thus sanctified me, and he has kept me in the true faith. So it's not like he gets you in, it's not like he gives you faith and he says, okay, you're on your own, hope you don't fall into unbelief. He sustains us by his word and sacraments in faith. So that faith is a gift and sustaining faith is a gift. In the same way, he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth. No exceptions. And keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. Okay. Here we see one true faith. And so, Christianity, we actually aspire towards conformism. In fact, that's really the pastoral office, is let's all be conformed into the image of Christ. Let's all believe precisely what Christ believes, and would have us believe. Let's all conform ourselves to the one true faith, delivered to the saints once and for all, as Jude says. So this is one, this is one place where modern theology has really gone off the rails because it's all about like, hey, well, what special nuance theory do you have? And how can you, how, uh, the, the real question is, how can you faithfully confess the faith that has been handed down? Yeah, that's the real question. All right, page 18 and we're done. In this Christian church, he daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers. We talked about how he does that, what means and modes he has. On the last day he will raise me and all the dead, and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. This is most certainly true. As you can see, Luther and the small catechism simply confess what the creed confesses uh, in in his own words, so to speak, in our own Lutheran words. All right. Lord's Prayer next week. The Lord be with you.